All right, well, good afternoon, and uh, glad you guys are with us. How many of you are uh, in college right now? Okay, so a few, and uh, how many of you are in the nursing home? No, I'm just kidding. I'll see, I'll see a few older people back here. I'm just joking. How about should be in the nursing home? Should be in the nursing home, yeah. All right. Well, hey, it is great to see you, and uh, if it gets a little warm, I don't know if we can open these windows or not, but uh, just fan yourself. You won't bother me at all. I am glad to be here, and uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll be encouraged by the things that we say. The reason I was asking you about college because it wasn't too long ago that I was sitting where you are, and uh, I can remember being enrolled at Texas State University down in San Marcos, Texas. And uh, man, I was away from home for the first time and uh, had my own apartment and was living with two or three other guys and none of us could cook. I mean, it, it was bad. You know, I was living on Hamburger Helper. They still have Hamburger Helper? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hamburger Helper and sandwiches, bologna sandwiches. And it got old really fast. So the first time I got an invitation from what turned out to be my future mother-in-law to come and have dinner at their house I was excited so we sat down around the you know the, the dinner table and she had just wonderful meatloaf she'd made and some wonderful green beans and and uh, mashed potatoes and then there was these wonderful wonderful dinner rolls all oh, they're homemade and I was loving I me mean, I was just piling all this stuff on my plate and then my mother-in-law said uh, John uh, can I get you anything else and I said well I, I need some butter and she said, excuse me? I said, I, I need some butter. And she said, are you sure you need some butter? And I said, no, ma'am, I guess not. She said, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, we always say, uh, I want some butter, right? Because, and that got passed on to Carla, my wife. And so now I have to hear it at the house. You know, I said, I sure need some pie. She says, what? You don't need any pie. You want pie. Well, it reminds me that, indeed, there are a lot of things in life that we think we need, but, you know, really we don't. And there is a difference between needs and wants. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to want, believe me, chocolate pie from time to time, as long as we don't get too out of, you know, out of hand with it. But uh, there's a huge difference. But when, I, when I'm talking about needs, and everybody has them, there are some needs definitely that are indispensable that we cannot do without and there's no problem with uh, what might that be what are some basic needs that, that you have to have tell me what do you think water. all right yeah I gotta have water what else <coughs> food and shelter right that's something that everybody has to have and that, that's an important thing and a good thing well are there any other needs beyond our physical needs that we have what do you think Okay, love? Stability. Huh? Stability. Okay, yeah, we all want a sense of, you know, uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, or do I know where I'm going to sleep tonight, or whatever, to some degree. We want some stability. What else? It's not good for man to be alone. Okay, yeah, we, we desire companionship. I think most people do. I know there are some rare situations, right? The guy that goes up, uh, was it Montana, the, the Unabomber that lived up there? No, wherever that was. And... Uh, he got far away, just wanted to be away from everybody. But I think most everybody really wants uh, to have some sort of you know, companionship or a friendship. So there are some basic needs, I think, that we all have. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of those needs. But what I want you to see first and foremost today 
is that God's word provides the answers for the needs that we have. And I look around the world and I see that there are a lot of people who are really struggling. And man, that might be you right now. There may be some of you that really are struggling with some anxiety, depression. Maybe uh, you're feeling as though you don't know where you're headed or what life is about. And you're just sort of searching. And one of the great things about this equipped workshop is that we get to talk about these things and then maybe how to better present them to others. But I'm excited for you because there are answers. And when I read through Scripture, uh, I'm reminded that God's Word and the message of the Gospel and the power that uh, is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead truly enlightens, it liberates, it empowers, uh, and it saves. And I think about the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, as being uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and joint and marrow, and as a discerner of the thought and intent of your heart. It allows us to sort of be able to uh, make sense of what life is about, what's most important, and to be able to make a proper discernment or judgment uh, about a lot of things. Uh, here's a great passage, Isaiah 61, and then fulfilled here in Luke 4, 18 by Jesus, where Isaiah spoke of a time in which people would be liberated from their captivity where the blind would receive their sight and, and that those who are, uh, are troubled or those who are captivated by sin and on and on the number of the things that are mentioned there, that God gives us this promise that there are truly answers to our problems and especially the answer to, well, what is it that I need that's going to really, really help me? In fact, the Bible is the greatest book that has ever been Composed, And I know you've heard this where people talk to you about it being a library of books. And, and that really is so important for us to see that this is not just one book. It's 66 books that have come together in a very unique way, overseen by the mighty providential hand of God that speaks to so many different topics. I, I worked with young people for a lot of years and uh, in campus ministry and and then in my preaching over the years, I've tried to remind people, you know, if you reduce this to its most basic uh, fundamental idea, it's just simply black ink on a page, right? Okay? It's just black ink on a page. But when you read it and you come to understand what it says, it's much more than that. It is not simply black ink on a page. It is, in fact, the li living, breathing Word of God. It came from God. God created us and He knows us better than anybody else knows us. And as a result of that, He appeals to so many things relative to our interest and to our various personalities. And, you know, a lot of us are interested in geography, physics, biology, oceanography, medicine, and much more. And, and God's Word actually makes reference to those kinds of things and speaks to those things. But what I want to share with you for just a few moments is this part right here. That it is the greatest psychology book that exists in the world. Long before psychology became a discipline, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Sigmund Freud, the father of modern-day psychology, long before that, the Bible existed 
that spoke about human personality, that spoke about and speaks about uh, why we do the things that we do and how to find peace and joy and contentment in our life. So there's a lot to this great book that uh, uh, we're saying that is a psychology textbook. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. But above all, you know what this book tells us about? Above all, it tells us about a, a rabbi, a teacher from Nazareth. A rabbi or teacher from Nazareth who became man. Now that's pretty powerful in and of itself, right? There are a lot of people who want to become God in their life, but there's only been one God that became man. That's a unique story in and of itself. It's very powerful. God becoming man. In, in, in Greek Roman philosophy and theology of that day, that, that was just anathema to them. It was scandalous to think that, what, you're telling us a story about a, about a God that's going to come down here and live among us? Well, part of the beauty of the Christian faith or the story of faith in, in the Christian system is that God came and dwelt among us. And as a result of that, we know that He understands. I mean, He already knew, right? We knew. God knew long before Jesus came to the earth about what you and I have to endure and all the things that we struggle with and all that. God knows everything. But, you know, human beings sometimes come up with this sort of way of excusing ourselves and saying, well, God, yeah, you don't really know because you've never lived in the flesh. But He did. And so he is and was in all points tempted like we are, Hebrews 4, 14, 4, 14 through 16, and yet he did it without sin. So now we know that God knows. He lived among us. He took up his abode among us. He became man. And that great God-man was a great physician, a comforter. And he is the source of life and light. Now, there are a lot of people right now who are living in darkness. And they may not see it, they may not know it, but they are. And then there are some who really know that they are. You know, what? where am I going? What is this life about? And, and the more and more secular, by the way, our society becomes as it is here in, here in America, people are becoming more and more depressed. We've got a mental health crisis on our hands uh, in the United States like never before. And I think there's one common denominator here. It is the fact that we've removed faith from the life of people. They've not known the great physician, the comforter, the source of light and life. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what this man Jesus says about life and life. And when we think about the New Testament, and as we study it in just a moment, I want you to realize this. Jesus knows us better than anyone. And to understand how God made us is where we must begin. Because if we are saying that Jesus meets our greatest needs or fulfills our greatest needs... We need to kind of back up just a moment and think about, well, who are we as people? What does God say about that? And uh, we're going to think about this psychologically for just a moment because, as I said, the Bible is the greatest textbook that is uh, you know, known to man. And 
I want us to start with Mark chapter 12. Open up your Bibles there for just a moment. And we're going to look at some awesome passages this afternoon relative to Jesus and relative to what He said about us as human beings, okay? So Mark chapter 12, 28 through 30, as this great physician, this doctor, this spiritual doctor, speaks to us about life and who we are. Listen to what he says. Who has that? Someone read that for us. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. I love scripture because there is all these layers to it. You know, you ever, you ever uh, dug up a rock in your yard? In, in Texas, where I'm from, uh, you know, you can go out there and there'll be a, like a little rock sticking up in the yard. Every once in a while, you'll dig it up. Oh, okay, it's a small rock. But every once in a while, you'll see a rock sticking up, and you think, uh, yeah, it's just a rock. And you start digging around it, and what you find is this boulder underneath, right? It's just a little part. It's kind of like the iceberg. You know, the tip of the iceberg sticking out of water. The greater part is underneath. You can't see it. And Scripture is like that in a lot of ways. There's all these layers. It's just awesome to think about what God is revealing to us on so many levels. And one of which right here is God giving us a window into the human psyche as to who you are. How God made you. And Jesus quotes from what we call the Shema, or what Jews today call the Shema, Hear, O Israel, from Deuteronomy 6, a passage that as we're going to talk about on Sunday afternoon in this teaching session, was engraved or written on little scrolls and put in little boxes that the Jews wore uh, above their heads and still do some of them today, the rabbinical Jews, and uh, these little boxes called phylacteries. And this most important passage of Scripture, quoted from Deuteronomy 6, in here Jesus says this about who we are, about the human soul. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus, of course, adds the will or the desire. Now, understanding the difference between soul and spirit sometimes is a little difficult. And Scripture does make that distinction. I'm not sure that I could really adequately describe it. But in understanding the essence of who we are that animates my body, right? My body has certain needs and desires, but, you know, when, when our spirit leaves us, it's just a dead body that's there. I've seen several of them over, the, over the, my years of preaching. And my parents both passed away in 2020. And I remember just thinking, wow, how lifeless. You know, just sitting there, it's just a shell. It's a tabernacle. It's a tent. There's something inside of each one of us that makes us who we are. That's God designed and God made. And Jesus gives us then this understanding when He says we have a mind, heart, and we have a will. The essence of who we are. And you begin to think about that. I've, I've thought about this when it comes to uh, uh, education. And when teachers are taught about how to better communicate and to instruct in the classroom, they'll tell teachers, look, you need to speak to the cognitive, to the affective, and to the psychomotor, right? To the reasoning side of us, you know, that calculates, that analyzes, to the heart, 
right? That is that part of us that has emotion. And I know the Bible speaks of the heart in reference to the mind, but it also makes a distinction between the two at times. There's some overlap, and that's why I've drawn the arrows that I, the way I have. But there is, I think we can all understand that we, we calculate 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we don't cry about that usually, right? Unless it has some. I mean, most of the time we don't, 2 plus 3 equals 5. Oh, I'm so sad, 2 plus 3. No, we, oh yeah, it's just the way it is, right? But if we add something to that, that maybe 2 plus 3, now I've got 5 children. That's worth crying about, right? If you got that many children, I'm kidding. All right. Now, so the mind and the heart, and then Jesus speaks about the will or the desires that we have. There's certain things inside of us that we have that God created. And some of you have already addressed some of that, right? The, the desire for companionship. Uh, the desire to eat. Jesus said to His disciples, I desire to eat the Passover with you. And the same word found there in Matthew 26, 28 about desire to eat the Passover with you is the same Greek word found in James 1 where the Bible says that we have desire. Some translations say lust. I don't like the translation there usually, but we have a desire. Now that's not sin in of itself, but Satan stirs up that desire, and when it's then brought forth, it brings forth sin and then death, right? Whenever Satan stirs it up outside those boundaries. So we have wills and desires. The desire for a sexual relationship is not evil in and of itself. We all have needs. And God has provided a source and a means for meeting those needs, okay? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. As we see, and then we're going to get to something that I think is even far greater and more important than all of these. But on a most fundamental level, when we think about our needs and how Jesus, through the New Testament and the Bible overall, reveals to us how God meets those needs, the desire I have to think, the desires for the human heart, the desires to do, to act, pretty amazing, right? Think about how God designed Scripture. Facts to believe. <clears throat> God just doesn't ask you to accept something in the absence of evidence. Faith and knowledge are not the same. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that they are exclusive of each other. In fact, our faith is rooted in knowledge. Now, it's different from knowledge in the sense that it means trust or reliance upon God. But we nevertheless understand that there is a desire in all of us that says, I want to know and I want to know why. Okay. How do I know that God exists? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Uh, is there a reason for believing that this is in fact the Word of God? And what is the basis for the salvation that we can enjoy with Christ Jesus? Does that make you ever ask yourself, why did Jesus have to die? Have you ever asked that? You know, I've asked that before. And when I've learned the facts of that, as we're going to talk about even some today, it's moved me to a greater affection and a greater sense of love for Jesus because of what I understand about the gospel message. There are truly facts to believe in through the disciplines of archaeology and geography and biology and on and on. God provides us ample evidence that really speaks to the need that we have that says, 
I want to accept something that's rooted in rationality, something that I can understand. God appeals to that. And in fact, I remember Brother N.B. Hardeman in one of his books years ago, or actually from the Hardeman Tabernacle Sermons that he preached down here in the Ryman Auditorium years ago, he spoke to this and saying that God created man and then adapted the Word to man as He made him. In other words, here we are, God created us and saw our needs and desires and then gave us the Word to satisfy the needs that we have. And what is one of those needs? Curiosity, the mind, calculating, thinking. There are probably some engineers sitting in this audience right here, you know, some people who are interested in mathematics or philosophy and logic and law, and you're going to kind of reason through. Why, why do we believe what we believe? God gives us a wealth, a wealth, and what I sometimes call an embarrassment of riches of information that appeals to that intellect that we have. Oh, man, I, I, I enjoy talking to students about God's Word and all that's there because I, I don't care what your interest is. Someone says, well, I like writing poetry. Guess what? <clears throat> the greatest poetry that's ever been composed has been found in Scripture. Right. Music? Uh, what about, you know, someone says, well, I, I, I like reading, uh, you know, um, C.S. Lewis books about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia or Star Wars. What, guess what? Long before Star Wars and the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the greatest motion pictures, as it were, was revealed in the book of Revelation that uses this marvelous, metaphorical, apocalyptic style of literature that captures the imagination, right? I mean, Lord of the Rings doesn't have anything on the book of Revelation, right? Right. Oh, there's all of this there that appeals to our intellect and our mind. But then not only are there facts to believe, but there are commands to obey. Man has this desire. Mankind does. Has this desire to do. To do. You know how many times, as a, as a, I have a background in counseling, and I've had people come and they sit down, they get all these problems, and guess what they usually ask me? John, what do you think? What should I do? What should I do? Right, yeah. Right, what should I do? And I actually start with, John, do you know anything at all? No. <laughs> so, what do I do about this situation? See, people feel like, okay, if, if I've got a problem, I need to be proactive in doing. There is this great sense of oughtness, this great sense of, I need to do something in order to rectify a situation or to make my situation better or whatever it is. It's found in Scripture. I love it. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and this wonderful sermon that touched their heart and appealed to their intellect about who David and who Jesus is rooted in the prophetic utterances that proved uh, his kingship and his kingdom. And you know, when they heard this, what does the Bible say? Pricked in the heart. And they? They asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? What should, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Remember Saul of Tarsus who was on the way to Damascus? And there he saw Jesus of Nazareth. He came to the inescapable fact, that's his mind, right? That he is Lord. Oh, 
oh boy, that, that created a whole situation for him. Now, he could, he could not deny the evidence of what he had seen. And now because of the evidence, what did he say to Jesus? Lord, what will you have me to do? Go to the city of Damascus and find one in an ice and there will be told you what you must do. We have a desire to do. And God gives us so many things that meet those needs. We want to be active. We want to feel like we, our life has meaning and purpose. And boy, when you read the scripture, God gives us something that says, this is going to change the world. It's going to change the world. Some of you raised your hand during college. When I was your age, we had a at, at Texas State, there was a group on campus called the, the Peace and Justice Corps. And they were an interdenominational group that, you know, were trying to call attention to social issues. And, and a lot of what they did, you know, I had a problem with it. I thought it was good in the sense that they were trying to call attention to that. But I thought, if we want true peace throughout the world, John Moore needs to get involved in preaching the gospel because that's what will bring peace in the lives of people and among people. We want to rid ourselves of the hatred and the bigotry and the, and the ill will and the racism and the wars going on in the world. We want to change the world. Oh, we can do a lot through medicine. I get that. We can do a lot through building safer buildings. That's okay. But most of all, be a Christian. Follow Jesus and you'll satisfy the needs of people that says we want to live in peace and harmony. We want to raise our family and feel you know, joy about all of that. And God says, here's how you do it. There are commands to obey that appeals to that sense of the desire that we have to do something. And then, take a look at this. And I have no idea what time it is. Someone's going to have to keep me out of my watch. Oh, okay, good. All right. so, well, you may be good, but I'm not, that's not enough time. All right. All right. So, Promises to be enjoyed. We all have a desire, as we said, to be loved, to be appreciated. We have a desire, you know, to for our hearts to be pricked, and, and we, we know that emotional side of us. And it's great to think about the fact that God gives us a lot of promises that the world so longs for. Mm -hmm. You know? A peace that passes all understanding. A sense of self-worth and, and value. And, you know, when I was working on this lesson, I just I got bogged down in so many areas because I just got to thinking about all the things that, that we have that God answers that you know we as individuals struggle with. I know there's a lot of wants, again, that we have, but then there are a lot of needs that we have that are that are fundamental to what it means to be human mm -hmm. and that are something that everybody shares. Mm -hmm. I'll get to those in just a moment. But I want to begin with this. The most important and fundamental need that we have was revealed in this setting in a place called Capernaum, and I put these pictures up here because I like geography and I like archaeology and all that, but I also want people to know they're real, okay? Where Jesus went here on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee exists. The remains of an ancient village from his time have been uncovered. The salt stones that were used for grinding that he uses imagery in his preaching of the gospel. The Sea of Galilee in the background that is there is where he walked and the storms that he calmed 
But it was in this place that Jesus came to be in a house one day. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and I want you to see something, because as we think about the promises to be enjoyed and the needs that are met by Jesus, this is a powerful story, okay? So Mark chapter 2. Jesus had made, according to Matthew's account, he had made Capernaum his home. And as he is working and you know, ministering among the people, the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he had returned to Capernaum. After some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, interestingly enough, there's a, what I call a big spaceship standing over the alleged place of Peter's home today in Capernaum. And what it is, it's a church building they built over the top of this to protect this, these ruins from the first century that later on a Byzantine church was constructed there and there are uh, Christian signs and symbols on the sides of the building in there. And they, some people say, well, it, this was, place was venerated. It must have been where Peter was and where his family was or something. And then you know, Jesus stayed there. I, I don't know. We don't know if that's his house or not. But we do know this was the village that existed during the time of Jesus. It was there. And he was in one of these homes, and they were small homes. I, I've seen the, the foundations of some of these homes, and a lot of them weren't much bigger than this room, and some of them, you know, I, probably the room he was in was about half his size. But it had windows, and it had little corridors, and, and there were some places where I've seen where they call them fenestrated stones that are sticking up where people could have been sitting down and looking in there, you know. And I mean, they're all crowding in, trying to see this man Jesus. And then we read in verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him, now notice, a paralytic carried by four men. I see probably everybody here in here can walk, right? You know anybody that can't walk? I do. Can you, can you imagine what it's like not being able to walk? I mean, we're thankful that we live in our day and age, right, where the, the ADA requirements exist that people can get to restaurants and you know, move about freely in a lot of ways and we have wheelchairs and devices that, that really make it a lot easier for people who can't walk. But still, can you imagine? I mean, the things that you feel like you can't do because you can't walk. I remember being in a hospital bed for two weeks and I couldn't even get out. I was hooked up to all these things. I thought, I feel miserable. I can't get to do what I want to do. I can't go anywhere. I don't think that being able to walk is a pretty significant need. And I go back 2,000 years to this village where there are no ramps, there are no wheelchairs, there are no extra rooms to you know go to the bathroom. You're completely and totally dependent upon someone else. And so these four men take this man who can't walk. And they get to the house to where Jesus is. And you know what his need is. You know what his desire is. Because they've been hearing about the man of Nazareth who's come to preach this great message and to heal people. 
And they get there and they can't get in the house. So what does the story tell us? What does it say? Remember? What did they do? Right. They go up and they start tearing apart the, the roof and they let them down. Jesus sees their... I mean, I've, I've read about kind of how their roofs were constructed. A lot of different opinions about what this was. Was it sort of like a grain silo that they kind of had to expand and, and drop him down into this part? I don't know. But they went to some great effort. Four of them carrying a man who can't walk. They get him up on top of the roof. They uncover. They drop him down to Jesus. And Jesus sees it. And guess what Jesus says? You would think, right, that this man's need was what? To walk. To walk. That's a pretty significant need, isn't it? What does Jesus say to him? Jesus? Are you not paying attention here? Of all the things, right? Because Jesus has been healing people. And they bring a man that can't walk to Jesus and He says, Your sins be forgiven you. you know what that tells me? That man's greatest need is not the ability to walk. It's not the ability to see. It's not the ability to be free from some sort of disease of a physical nature. Man's greatest need is the need for forgiveness. Amen. Now some people kind of scratch their head at that and they think, you know, wait, 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 wait a minute here, John. What, what in the world is going on here? What? This, this, this guy, he's suffered. He's got problems. He can't get anywhere. They're carrying him out. And Jesus is more concerned about that? Yes, sir. And you know why? Because of what the Bible says about sin. What the Bible says about law. I, sin, according to 1 John 3, 4 and 1 John 5, 17, is a transgression of the law. Whoever commits sin, right, transgresses the law. Now, what's so bad about sin? I mean, does God just arbitrarily pick things and say, you know, well, I think I want to kill people's fun. I don't, I want to put, get them under my thumb, and I just want them to, you know, to be unhappy, and I'm going to put them to the test, and so forth. And you know, there are times in which God puts people like Abraham to the test, and so forth. But when you read through Scripture and we talk about law and sin, what we have to understand is that God is holy. God is perfect. God knows what's best for us. Amen. And God wants you to be happy. He wants your needs to be fulfilled. And so He says, don't do this. And don't do that. Do this. So He gives us a law. And that law is for our good. For our happiness. For our protection. But also for the protection and the rights and the safety of others. That's right. God doesn't want anybody to be hurt. And you know, I thought a lot about this, that God gets angry at sin. And people say, well, 
God, why, why are you angry at sin? Why, why are you angry at you? God, you're always, He's not always angry. Read the entirety of the gospel message and run as God of love, but it begins by His seeing the unrighteousness and the evil in the world and the harm that is brought. And it always amazes me how that some people say, how can God get so angry? And then yet, those same people get angry when any unrighteous thing is done to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I think if, if uh, let's just say after classes are with today that uh, you went outside and, and maybe uh, there's a dear sweet lady in the congregation here that everybody knows and loves and cares so much about and, and uh, she's feeble and she's, she's uh, maybe on a walker and she's trying to get out to her car and down the street a couple of guys come along and they see her they see that purse hanging there on her walker and they run over and they push her down to the ground her face hits across the asphalt and you see it all happening and they take off with their purse and step on her head as they're running away how would that make you feel? you'd be angry right? it's not right for people to treat other people that way there's an injustice there You'd be right to be angry. And I think about the heinous things that have been done to people over the centuries. Whether it's rape and murder and or whether it's the Holocaust and all the you know, on and on we could go and talk about terrible, terrible things that people have done and committed crimes. Now, do we agree that there ought to be some punishment? Is there any penal code at all? I mean, we know that there's a penal code that, that is a deterrent for crime, but also a penal code is put there to protect us. Now, God can't get angry when other people are harmed. Of course He is. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God is perfect in love. And goodness and mercy. You'll say, okay, John, where's my greatest need in all of this? I get that these people need to be saved. I get that these people need to be forgiven. But what about that lame man? What did he do to have to have that pronouncement instead of first saying, take up your bed and rise and walk? I don't know what he did, but I know he was a sinner implied in the text by what Jesus says. Maybe maybe this man one day threw something at somebody, hurt him because he was so angry and frustrated about the situation. Maybe he harmed somebody about things he said. Maybe one day cursed God. I don't know. But he must have harmed somebody or harmed himself or God. He was a sinner. I hear people say, you know, John, I've never murdered anybody. Have you ever committed character assassination? You ever said something about someone that was not right? John, I've never stole anything. I'm not, I I shouldn't have to be punished. I've never stole anything. I'm a good person. Is that right? Have you never robbed anybody of their dignity? You ever said something to someone that made them feel less or lied to them about something? I think all of us could go down 
Romans chapter 2 or various passages of Scripture and realize, you know what? We've broken God's law. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And as a result of our sin, God being just, He has to punish wrongdoing. He has to if He's going to be a just God. So therefore, I am in need of salvation. That's why Jesus came to this earth. To offer Himself up as a sacrifice. To thereby appease the wrath of God. To thereby take upon Himself the penalty or the price of sin, the consequences, what should have been ours. He bore that in us so that God could declare to the world, I am just, I am punishing wrongdoing, but I'm providing a way of escape and salvation for sinners. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 5, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet for a venture, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward you, and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ went to the cross and bore your shame. He, through His stripes, allowed us to be healed. It's a great act of love and sacrifice that God says, I am going to be both just and the justifier of men. Now, I don't know, you know, as our time has gotten away from us here, if you have thought enough about this, but I have more and more because I wanted to look more deeply into the gospel and say, well, why did Jesus have to die? What's going on? What is my greatest Praise be to God. God has provided an answer for that. Amen. The day of Pentecost, when they cried out and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, that's a legal term there, to remove it, the responsibility of it, the weight of it, the obligation of it, to remove that weight of sin from our life, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sin. I make that decision to follow Jesus and to receive that free gift of salvation from God. And that gift meets my greatest need but also gives me a sense of purpose and knowledge of the importance that I am in the eyes of God, the love that He has for me. And then I'll just finish with this. You know, there's probably somebody even right now who's struggling, even though they've been forgiven, and struggling with who they are their identity. They're comparing themselves to people of the world and they say, well, I'm too fat. I don't run enough. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I don't do this and people don't want me or I can't seem to do this or do that. And, and on and on they go and they say, look, I'm just this lowly person and we're constantly comparing ourselves to the world, right? You know what Jesus said? On a hillside here near the city of Galilee, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There is great joy and peace to be found in serving Jesus because He loves the lowly. He came to die for the humble. He gives grace to those who are humble. 
in this upside down kingdom where the men, the kingdoms of the world say, this is what's most important. It's, it's, it's being at the top. Jesus says, those who are lowly in spirit and humble. Jesus says, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you'll find rest unto your soul. You won't rest. There's no greater peace and joy in all the world that meets your most basic and fundamental needs than those that are found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being with us today.